we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. This is Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Violence is becoming commonplace. We can't let it become something that we just accept. We hear about weekend violence in big cities. We shrug it off and are thankful that it was not in our neighborhood. But there's a particular kind of violence that happens in every neighborhood, violence against women. Sadly, so many abused women they trusted their partners. Their partners professed their love and devotion. Some women escaped their abuser with their lives and mental states intact. Others aren't so fortunate. Women have been duped by men for millennia. The same can be said for religion. Faith in a higher power, is it's a good thing to remind us that we're just a tiny fraction of the universe and a tiny fraction of humankind. But in my view, no legitimate religious or secular philosophical tenet commands that we should subject ourselves to abuse at the hands of another human being. My guest tonight lived through abuse for years, and I'm sure her story will touch us all. Yasmin Mohammed advocates for the rights of women living in Muslim-majority countries, as well as those who struggle under religious fundamentalism in general. She's the founder and president of Free Hearts, Free Minds, a nonprofit charity that provides mental health support for members of the LGBT community and free thinkers living within Muslim-majority countries. And these are countries where these crimes of being a free thinker can be punished by execution. She hosts the podcast, Forgotten Feminists, where she has conversations with inspirational women from restrictive religious backgrounds who fought and who have overcome. Her book, Unveiled, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam is a memoir of her experiences growing up in a fundamentalist Islamic household and her arranged marriage to a member of Al-Qaeda. Welcome to the show, Yasmin. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Marilyn. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, I tell you, I could not put your book down it, it was just so from the heart and didn't sound like it was written by somebody who was just a political wonk, but they just wanted to tell the story. So I'm just going to start you right off the beginning that talk about your childhood and, and what, how was it like? What was it like? Where did you grow up? All those things, just, just let it out. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, like you said, I, I wrote my book just wanting to humanize, you know, my story, just kind of give the insider's perspective, the whistleblower, as I've been called, uh, perspective. Um, but really, I just wanted people to understand what it's like to be a young girl raised in a Muslim household, 
um, even in the West. So I was born and raised in Vancouver, Canada. My mom was born in Egypt and my father was born in Gaza. And the two of them met each other in university and in university in Egypt. And then they got married and moved to San Francisco, California, where they had my sister. And then they moved to Canada where they had my brother and I. And by the time they reached um, Canada, their family, or sorry, their marriage is already on the rocks. But by the time I was born, they, it was, they were ready to get a divorce. Um, so I never really grew up with my dad in my life. Um, so my mom at that point had three children. She was on her own in a new country, you know, um, and she started looking around for community. She started looking around for a support system. Now, it's important to note neither of my parents grew up religious at all. They were just, you know, culturally Muslim, I guess. Uh, but, you know, she went looking for community in a mosque simply because it was something of her heritage that she thought, you know, she might find other women who speak Arabic, you know, other people that she could befriend that kind of were familiar with her, um, with her background. And, you know, they spoke the same language and she could just f make friends, you know. But at well, the mosque... And, yes, and I ahead. think, no, and I just think that's common because a lot of people mm -hmm. do that. They move to a new town and just pick up with a church because it's sort of a built-in community. Yeah, that's exactly it. But what my mom didn't realize at the time was that this was the early 80s. And, you know, the the Islamic regime in Iran had just taken over. And there was, sort of, there was a really huge resurgence, well, surgence, in um you know what is what are now commonly called islamists and these are muslims who have a real political agenda a real political goal of spreading islam throughout the world so people are familiar with jihadis that do the, the similar thing like you know al-qaeda isis etc but islamists are more of a quiet um you know if you think of them as like Bin Laden type people, but they've got nice suits on and they've got great degrees and they speak very eloquently. So it, it's more of a of a diplomatic way of of um, of spreading Islam. And my mom got caught up in that. The man that she met at the mosque was an Islamist, and he um, married my mom, even though he was already married and he already had three children. He married my mom as took her on as his second wife. In Islam, a man can have up to four wives. And that's when my whole life changed. So I went from being just a regular kid that, you know, I'd ride my bike, I'd go swimming, I'd listen to music, I'd play Barbies with my friends, and suddenly everything was forbidden. You know, you're, you're not allowed to do any of those things anymore. You're not allowed to go swimming because you're going to show skin. You're not allowed to ride a bike because... You, you could break your hymen and then you wouldn't be a virgin. And then that would, you know, be detrimental. Um, <laughs> you can't uh, listen to music anymore because that sounds from the devil. You can't um, play with your friends anymore because they are not Muslim. And so he just, you know, it's like a, it's like an earthquake hit our home. You know, everything, everything just was demolished in my eyes. I was, 
I kept waiting for him to leave. I kept waiting for my mom to sort of wake up from this stupor that she was in, where she was just letting this man come into our home and, and demand that we memorize the Quran and demand that we pray five times a day and would whip us mercilessly if we didn't. And I kept hoping that she would somehow snap out of it, but she didn't. She just would like look to the ground and let him do whatever it was that he wanted to do. I mean, one poignant memory for me was when he sat us down on the carpet um, and he started taking my mom's records. My mom used to love country music. So we had a lot of Dolly Parton and Hank Williams and Kenny Rogers playing in the house all the time. And he took her records and he started breaking them. And then he started handing the shards to us and saying, break these. And I just couldn't believe the audacity of this man walking into our place and breaking my mom's things. And she just stood there and let him do it. And I, I remember feeling so confused at, you know, like if my brother had walked into my room and started breaking my Barbies, I would have been livid, but my mom just stood there and she just let him. And it was kind of a message to the three of us that, you know, a new sheriff's in town, like my, like my, like he has full control and my mom was going to do nothing to protect us or protect herself even. Well, one question I have, and you know, when you describe this creature, he's a guy who's out there, and I'm assuming with a regular job and communicating with other people who are non-Muslims, what's what's it? I, I don't know how a person comes home and acts like that, but then they're out in the community apparently appearing normal, so nobody knows what the home life is really like. That's exactly it. You're you're exactly correct. Um, there's it, it's a it's a very um, it's very duplicitous in that way because it, it's everything is with there's like the inside voice and the outside voice. It's like <clears throat> everything that an Islamist speaks is with a forked tongue. And so from the from the outside, he'll be perceived by his colleagues as, you know, um, a downtrodden Egyptian immigrant or something like that. Like they'll view him as, um, you know, part of a minority group and somebody who needs to be um, protected. And, you know, that the, the way that we normally would would view immigrants from other countries, the way we've been taught to sort of, in a way, infantilize um, immigrants. And the reality is very different from that, but um, it serves him to be seen as a victimized minority on the outside because that um, makes him less um, of a threat. You know, it, of course, if people knew his true intentions, um, they they would treat him differently. And so it it has to be it has to be subversive. Well, it's interesting because you talk about somebody, it's almost donning a a veil of uh, being a victim. And 
when I think of the title of your book about how uh, Western liberals empower radical Islam is this whole thing that they're pushing now of the oppressor and the oppressed. So it's like, That's all right. I have to do is march in and say, I'm an oppressed. And, you know, your transgressions will be ignored. It's like, well, he's oppressed. And uh, it's really sad because we don't see people for what they really are. That is exactly correct. And sometimes somebody can be, you know, both, you know, a, a, a victim and an oppressor. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> he wasn't, he's from Egypt, you know, but like I'm thinking of somebody who's maybe, you know, a, a refugee from you know, Afghanistan or, or something like they, they could potentially, yes, you were a victim in that scenario. However, you are the oppressor when it comes to your wife and your daughters, for example. So people can be more than one thing at the same time. And this one of the biggest problems with this black and white, you know, very simplistic scenario that we're raising this newest generation with um, you know, white people, bad, brown people, good, white people, oppressors, um, brown people, the oppressed is it, first of all, it's just untrue. We're, we're all human and we all have the capacity of, of good and bad within us. Um, but it, it, it kind of, um, it allows the oppressors to hide under certain umbrellas you know, the, the Islamophobia label is a really great label to hide a lot of oppression underneath, because as soon as anybody starts to speak out against any things uh, that are happening within this religion that are, you know, creating victims, you know, you mentioned how my organization supports the LGBT community. If you start to talk about, for example, how gay people are killed within, you know, 15 Muslim majority countries and within the other ones, they're persecuted, they're, you know, they're, they're harmed in other ways. They're definitely um, having to keep their lives a secret from their friends and family um, because there's even, you know, vigilante violence that can happen. But we can't talk about that. We can't talk about that because that's Islamophobic. We can talk about that in the context of Western countries but if you speak about it from, you know, happening in, in Muslim majority countries, well, that's Islamophobic. So that term hides, you know, allows so many oppressors to hide behind it, especially oppression against women. I think that's um, the, the, the most egregious um, of all the crimes that it hides constantly. So, yeah, it, it is very... It's it's just a lie that we have somehow um, sold, and you know it, it's been unfortunately, you know, a lot of the younger generation have been trained with this. And you read my book, Marilyn, but I'm I'm going to just you know tell your listeners a little bit about how harmful that is because you remember when I was 12 years old, and when one of my teachers helped me to speak to the authorities about what was happening in my home, about the physical abuse specifically. And, you know, it went through the police, it went through child services, there was this huge investigation, and it ended up, you know, in family court. And in the end, the judge said to me, well, this is your, this is your culture, this is your family's 
way of disciplining you. And so, you know, it's their freedom, it's their cultural freedom. So that kind of, you know, moral relativism, the now, now we can see how insidious it is, right? Now we can see how problematic it is when we treat people based on their ethnicity or their skin color or their religion or their whatever, based on judging the actions of the perpetrators. You know, if I was standing in front of them, a little girl with blonde hair and blue eyes, and, you know, my family are fifth generation Canadian, there's no way that the judge would have said, well, it's acceptable for your family to hang you upside down in the garage and whip you for not praying. You know, that wouldn't, that would never happen. But because my family happened to come from, you know, North Africa, suddenly it's, it's acceptable. So it it's really is just an, another kind of um, just bigotry. It's another kind of bigotry, but it's a bigotry of low expectations, you know, and the, and the same can be said. And it, happens all the time with young girls who are victims of female genital mutilation. And it happens so commonly in the West, you know, and when these girls try to, you know, speak up for themselves, they try to um, speak up for each other. When we, when we try to expose the families and even the doctors that are doing this, it's the response from authorities are things like, well, we just need some education. You know, we have to be we have to be culturally sensitive as we educate these families that they shouldn't take a, a razor blade to their daughter's clitoris and slice it off. No, we don't need education. We need prisons. We need we need, you know, these people need to be behind bars. That's what we need. And again, if it was a family, if it was a, an American family with a little American daughter and they had done that to her, they had sewn her shut so that she only had a tiny little hole to urinate from. There's no way that the response from law enforcement would be, oh, well, we just need to educate them, you know. But because this little girl's family happens to come from Somalia or from Egypt, it's like, oh, well, we just need to educate them. This so, is so, so bad. And I, excuse me for interrupting, I, you know, I'm just sitting here and even though I've read it, I'm still appalled hearing it again. And the idea that these things are forgiven, oh, well, it's their culture. I mean, my goodness is, I feel like that's sort of the excuse now that crime is running rampant. Oh, well, it's cultural and, and we can't have this. Some things are good. Some things are bad. And yes, there's gray in the middle, but we have to be clear that you can't abuse children. I don't care where you come from. After the break, we're going to go more into your life and more of some of these beliefs. And um, we'll just get deeper into this after the break. Cholesterol, blood pressure, blood sugar, inflammation, and weight. These are all real-world problems that 87% of Americans are struggling with. Often, there are no symptoms, but left unattended, we become inundated with one health problem after another. It's time to fight back with Heal Right. Heal Right is a bar that you eat, but it's food as medicine that addresses the nutritional root cause of health issues in just eight weeks. 
developed by world-renowned scientists and backed by 15 years of research. Heal Right is effective, but it's also delicious and works without additional diet or lifestyle changes. Step out of the statistics and use food as medicine. Visit HealRight.com slash OutLoud or AmericaOutloud.shop and use the code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Who's got time for a nasal invasion messing up your lifestyle? Crush those nasties before they become a problem. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order with the coupon code OUTLOUD, you'll receive 20% off the entire purchase. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop. That's AmericaOutloud.shop and use coupon code OUTLOUD. Use Cofix RX because it works. Before the break, we were talking about the abuse that Yasmin Mohammed endured as a child. And this was in Canada. This was in a Western country, but living with an Islamist stepfather. And uh, I'd just like you to kind of go through more what happened. One story that got to me so much in the book was when you had Secret Santa at school and somehow you couldn't do that. Can you tell us about your life in school and mixing with regular Western kids? Yeah, I, I appreciate that you, um, you know, cause that, that really was a traumatic moment for me. Like it was, it was such a difficult moment. It was such a difficult experience. And, you know, when you relay it, it's compared to the other things that, in the book, it doesn't seem like, you know, it, it would even be something to mention, but it, it really was, um, it, it really was one of the most difficult moments of my life, actually. So it, I was in grade four and we had a secret Santa and my family, of course, you know, I'm not supposed to celebrate Christmas, but I was so happy to be included with this group of girls and I didn't want to say anything. And so I kept, you know, hoping that, you know, on the day when it came to exchange presents, that at some point between, you know, now and then, I would find some opportunity to get a gift and, you know, convince my mom that, um, you know, to allow me to get a gift because I didn't have my own money or my own way of going and getting my own gifts at that point. And to to wrap it up and and to partake in this secret Santa. But, you know, we've talked a lot about the man that she married, but my mom at this point had become, you know, like almost like a born again Muslim. I call her a born again Muslim so people can understand what kind of a zealot she became. She she became you know, she was trying to prove her Muslimness so much in order to almost make up for all those years of her wearing mini skirts and just living freely. So she just, you know, hook, line and sinker became, you know, even more of an Islamist than the man that she married in some ways. And so she was absolutely never going to let me partake in Secret Santa and I cried and I begged and I told her how embarrassed I would be, how humiliated I would be and how devastating it would be for me if she sent me to school 
without a gift. And she genuinely did not care. In fact, she thought of it as a, as a teachable moment for me so that I would never dare to, you know, try to pretend again that I might, you know, be able to get away with being a normal kid. You know, she needed me to never dare to do that again, but to always know that I was a Muslim and they were non-Muslims and we were different and we were not the same. And, you know, it was us versus them and good versus bad. And, and so, um, she refused and I had to go to school and all of my friends were, um, exchanging their gifts and I had nothing. And she wanted me to say that the reason why I didn't have anything was because I was a Muslim and Muslims don't celebrate Christmas. And I couldn't say that. So instead I said, I'm sorry, my mom wouldn't let me. I wasn't allowed to get a present and I felt really bad. And my friends were actually surprisingly kind. Um, they were, you know, they were kids, but they still empathized. And what ended up happening was the present that was supposed to go to me ended up going to the uh, girl that I had not purchased a gift for. Uh, so we worked it out as kids, but that kind of put this scarlet letter on me. You know, I was always like the weird one and everybody knew it. And it wasn't only that incident, but that was the one that was the most painful for me. Um, you know how it is with kids. You just want to be included. You want to belong. You want to be part of the group and to be, you know, ostracized like that to by your mom was, um, well, it was pretty hard for me to get over that. Well, it was being an outcast. And exactly. I look, again, you know, it goes back to this whole idea of, as they say, othering. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons, and I know it bothers you so much, what they're doing now, categorizing people in little groups. And when people are just trying to be human beings and get along with one another, and which many people do try to do. And it, it's it's like I don't I don't even know how to put it where the powers that be want that sort of separation. And that was a separation that left you really traumatized as a child. And and now they're doing it to children on purpose. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it is. It's expecting us to fit into these little boxes. And the way I described it in my book is giving us prescribed enemies. You know, I was, I was told you must hate these people. They are the other. And I had no reason to, I, I didn't want to that, you know, my, what I was being told of how evil these people were did not fit with the reality of what I was seeing in front of me. Um, and I find that that exactly as you say, that has sort of just been extrapolated now. You, you see it everywhere where we're being, where we're being pitted against each other. Different groups of people are being pitted against each other all the time. And, you know, I can feel the, the toxicity of that in my heart. Um, uh, but 
cognitively, I can recognize that that is a, a, a beautiful gift to those who want us to be divided. You know, as long as we are fighting against each other over stupid things, you know, then we are not going to be united in working against those who are oppressing us. And you see that very much um, in our societies. And I saw it very much growing up. And uh, it is really sad. Well, it is. Now, when did your mother have you start wearing uh, a hijab? So the magical age is nine years old. That's when a girl becomes a woman. Um, and so that's the age. Some families actually put it on their daughters even before that. But that is the sort of the average age that a religious family will start putting the hijab on their daughter. Um, that's the age that Aisha was. You know, Muhammad married her when she was six, but he consummated the marriage when she was nine because that's when she became a woman. He was 53, by the way. And so because of that experience, because of that sort of, um, you know, Muslims are taught to think of Muhammad as in the Quran, it says that Muhammad is the best example for all humanity for all time. And so in order to continue following his example, girls are considered women at the age of nine years old. And you know, that's that's when my childhood was ripped away from me. And that's when I was told, you know, you're a woman now. You're ready to be married now. You have to learn how to be a wife now. And you have to cover yourself because you're now, you know, this uh, sexual being. And you could cause men to, um, you know, to be deviant. And so you have to take responsibility for that. And you have to cover yourself so that you don't entice them to to sin right <laughs> so it, it uh yeah so that was you know I, I fought against it of course i didn't want it of course what child would you know i wanted to live my life freely as freely as i possibly could at that point because that man that she had married had been in our life you know already by then for a few years i was around five or six years old when he was introduced to us and you know, it's like the last semblance of real of of normalcy was was being taken away from me. And I asked my mom, I said, you know, can I just shave my head instead? If I'm bald, then there's no hair showing. Is that am I allowed to do that? You know, and she was like, of, of course not. That's being like the Jews. You know, how could you even dare <laughs> try to, you know. To, to emulate the Jews, of course not. You can't shave your head. Um, you know, I said, what if I wear a wig? Then it's not my hair. It's, you know, it's fake hair. Like, <laughs> then is that okay? You know, I, I kept on trying to, to find a way to not have to wear it. But there's a lot of coercion that goes on and a lot of, there's, it, it's kind of this mix. It's this emotional, you know, um, you know, emotional manipulation cocktail. So it's, they go from, you're going to burn in hell for eternity if you don't cover yourself properly to, you know, you're going to be so beautiful and so much cleaner and better and 
um, Allah will love you and everybody will think that you're such a good girl. And, you know, if you don't wear it, then you're a filthy whore, like the non-believers. Do you want to be like them? You know what I mean? So it just mm -hmm. kept on switching all the time. And, you know, there's, there's so many analogies that they use that it, that is just like, you know, they're so commonly used across, you know, the 57 Muslim majority countries, how many girls I've spoken to and women I've spoken to that have been told the analogy of the lollipop, for example, or, you know, or whatever it was, you know, a banana with its peel or whatever stupid piece of food that they're going to um, come up with. But basically they tell you, you know, they'll show pictures of like a, a lollipop that's all covered up and they'll say, you know, here's a lollipop that's all covered up and here's another one that isn't covered and it's sticky and it's got flies on it and dirt. And which lollipop would you prefer? You want the covered one, right? Look how filthy the uncovered one is. Well, what about you? Do you want to be a covered lollipop or do you want to be a filthy, dirty, uncovered lollipop? And the, just the, the coercion and just the constant pressure, pressure, pressure. And then they'll tell you it's a choice. You know, we're nine-year-old kids. A lot of us, or we're nine, some are younger, some are a little bit older, but that's the average age. Um, being coerced into wearing this. And um, it absolutely is not a choice. And, and you can know for sure that it's not a choice when you see what happens when a girl decides not to wear it. You know, famously in... In Iran, the woman life freedom uh, movement has really brought that to light all across the world. They've shown people, you know, Masa Amini was beaten to death by the religious belief, police because she wasn't wearing uh, her hijab properly because she had some hair showing. She was still wearing it, but they just didn't think that she was wearing it properly enough, you know. And women are imprisoned over it. Women are beaten over it. Women are killed over it. And this isn't only in Iran. This isn't only in the Muslim majority world. In Canada, in my country, in America, in your country, Sweden, France, Germany, Italy, it, almost in every country in, in, on this planet, girls have been murdered by their fathers or their brothers over being too Western and dressing too Western and, you know, not wearing hijab. Sometimes girls are killed even if they wear hijab, but if they've made a TikTok video or, you know, posted their picture on Instagram or Facebook without hijab on, even that is enough to for them to lose their lives. So, you know, this this lie that it's a it's a choice, you know, you can really, you can really see how it's absolutely not a choice when you see how girls are treated when we when we choose not to wear it. Well, somehow you imagined you, you say in your book, you had a really good friend, uh, a Western girl, and uh, were able to talk about such things. And that's when you started to wonder what on earth is going on with my life and uh, kind of tested your beliefs. And I just feel like you're so lucky well, part of it is somehow, no matter how you were brought up, I think God gives us some sort of internal will, and you certainly had it, and you had a will for freedom, and just having a good Western friend that you could discuss your feelings with, my goodness, that I'm sure helped launch you out of this life. 
Oh, 100%. If it, if it weren't for Tiffany, I don't know if anything would have ever cracked through the indoctrination. You know, she uh, was so loving and so kind and so patient. And I don't even know, I, I can't even comprehend, you know, how she could have been that patient with me because it was absolutely, you know, it, it is so ridiculous. You know, in my book, I tell the story of me explaining to her that, you know, when you go into the bathroom, you have to go in through your left foot first and you say this little, you know, that you ask God to protect you from the demons that live in the bathroom. And, you know, like there's, there's just so many steps. There's so many constant, like your brain is constantly engaged with so many rules all the time. Um, you know, I, I try to de describe it to people, like obviously praying five times a day and each prayer takes, you know, about a half an hour. So you're throughout your day, you're constantly being pulled back into the indoctrination just in case somebody like Tiffany crosses your path, you know, you have to get pulled right back, you know, into remembering hell and how you're going to burn in hell if you don't listen. Um, so there's that, the, the five times a day of prayer, but then there's everything else that, that covers literally from the moment you wake up in the morning, how you put your shoes on, how you put your clothes on, how you drink your water, how you cut your toenails, how you, every single step of your life is outlined. And so you're constantly thinking, um, you know, you're constantly worried, you're constantly filled with anxiety the 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 visual representation of this so they call it a saratul which means the long thin straight path and they show it on posters like a tightrope and below the tightrope are the fires of hell and so as a muslim you have to walk along this tightrope very very carefully and if you misstep you know like if you miss a prayer for example then boom into hell you go so you're just you're just constantly, constantly worried. Now, for me to be this big ball of anxiety and for Tiffany to still have the patience to kindly speak to me and get through to me and, um, you know, she's an amazing human being. And she really did um, cause those first rays of light, you know, to come into my mind by just asking me simple questions and making simple statements that I, I really couldn't respond to i couldn't deny I, I just couldn't i had no they just made sense mm -hmm. um but it wasn't until university so i got away you mentioned that i was forced into a marriage well, with let, an let me let me agent. stop yeah. okay let me stop you there because that's that's a good spot for the break you going to college and getting into marriage and kids and how you got into the new life that you're in now. And we will discuss that in our final segment after the break. Now, George Washington once encouraged us to animate and encourage each other and show the whole world that a free man contending for liberty on his own ground is superior to any slavish mercenary on earth. That's exactly what we do, as you'll see when you visit AmericaOutloud.news. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. 
America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our redox-based products tap into reserves within you to power your personal well-being. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. Before the break, I was talking with Yasmin Mohammed about her life growing up in an Islamist household. And over the years, she was still able to have friends, and uh, it, it amazes me the strength it takes to break free from such a restrictive environment. So let's go on to the next phase of your life. You're grown up now. Did you stay in Canada? Did you go back to Egypt? And what happened after that? Well, we went to Egypt as a family um vacation i thought i was only going to be there for the summer but then i woke up one morning and my family were all gone um and i was left there my mom had taken my passport with her we you know they had just decided that they were going to leave me in egypt to kind of get reprogrammed because when i was living in Canada, I was becoming too westernized. I was asking too many questions. You know, I really wanted to go to my prom, but of course I wasn't able to. Um, but I, I kind of, my mom was getting frustrated with how I wanted my freedom. You know, I, I looked at the world beyond the sort of bubble of Sharia that I was living under. And I wanted that. I wanted to be able to, you know, get an education. I wanted to be able to work. I wanted to be able to get a car. And she felt that if she could leave me in a Muslim country, that I would start to not want these things anymore. And that I would just, you know, it would be easier to get me to submit to my faith and to, to conform as a, as a good little uh, Muslim girl. So they left me there, and when I was there, I was basically imprisoned in my aunt's house. So my mom had a twin sister, and she would lock the door from the outside when she would leave. So she was either there with me, keeping an eye on me, or if she left the house, she would lock the door so I would be locked in the house. And, you know, these are back in the days before... There was no social media. The only way I could contact Tiffany was through phone. And we didn't even have the ability to call long distance from the apartment. So I would have to go to like this phone station <clears throat> where you would go and you'd 
you pay money up front and say five minutes and then you could make a phone call. Like it was this really big deal and I couldn't do it on my own. Um, one of my, after the first year that I was there, they tried to get me to marry my cousin and I resisted of course, but now I'm into my second year and I was getting tired and I had not, I didn't have a support system. And one of my neighbors just got this brand new machine called a fax machine. <laughs> and so I was able to, because Tiffany's mom was a, um, a real estate agent. So she also had a fax machine. And so I could, S Tiffany and I could send letters through her mom's office through this fax machine. And then I started to feel like there was hope that I wouldn't have to marry my cousin. I wouldn't be stuck in Egypt. You know, Tiffany was promising that if I made it back to Canada, that, you know, she would help me. And um, so I begged and pleaded my mom to let me come back to Canada. And she eventually gave in. Uh, she was worried that once I got to Canada that I would never want to go back. So she had to make sure that I married my cousin first, thinking that that would, you know, prevent me from, from, you know, just staying in Canada. But I feel a responsibility to this man and who had just bought an apartment and bought this and that. And so I would feel like I needed to go back, but I did not. Um, once I got to Canada, I basically said to my mom, unless you're going to duct tape my hands and feet and, you know, my mouth and plop me on that plane yourself, there's no way I'm going back. So that, of course, caused a lot more animosity in our relationship because she was trying so hard to control me. And, you know, I just was refusing to be controlled. And so it made her even you know, it made our relationship even more difficult. And you might have noticed this reoccurring theme throughout my book that all I ever wanted was my mom's love. And, um, you know, I wanted her to be proud of me. I wanted her to approve of me. Um, but she never did because she always saw me as, um, you know, somebody who just would not submit and that was um, frustrating for her. Well, how did but she by the time get, oh, I'm sorry. I just wonder, how did she, she get you to marry this Al-Qaeda fellow? Did she know he was Al-Qaeda? Uh, where did yeah. he come from? Yeah, so she did know that he was Al-Qaeda. And it, it's kind of, you know, going back to the that cocktail of, you know, um, emotional manipulation that I was describing before. It's, it's again, more of that, but a much more, um, much darker now because I'm older and I can handle it more. So there's no analogies with lollipops. It's more things like there's a hadith, um, a saying of the prophet that says, heaven is at the feet of your mother. So if your mother does not approve you, entering heaven it doesn't matter how good you've been in your life it doesn't matter what you've done if your mother does not approve of you going to heaven you will never even 
smell. You'll never even be close enough to heaven to smell its air. So that was one that was that my mom used a lot. Of, if you don't marry this man, you will. I will never approve you going to heaven. And you're obviously then that means you're going to burn in hell for eternity. And I was I believed this. You know, like it's silly now that I don't believe in this religion anymore. But when you have been indoctrinated in this your whole life, when you've been given very, very specific descriptions of how you're going to suffer in hell and how you're going to suffer in the grave waiting for the day of judgment. You know, you you really do believe that. I mean, it, it gave me nightmares even after I had renounced and like denounced Islam and I had, I was free from the religion. I would still have anxiety over it um, and nightmares over it. Like it really, it, it, it's really deep seated um, indoctrination. Awesome. So there was a lot of that. Yeah. Oh. There was a lot of that. And there was also a lot of, if you want me to be proud of you, if you want me to love you, if you want to finally be a good daughter. So again, you know, the, the going from the, from the threats and, the, you know, different coercive methods. And I really truly was exhausted at this point, Marilyn. I really was. I mean, for two years I had been in Egypt all alone Tiffany had gone to Sweden. She fell in love with a Swedish man and she was no longer in Canada anymore. And she was the only person that I'd had connection with. Um, I felt so alone and I, I really just gave up. I just, I, for a moment, I thought to myself, what if, what if I marry this man? What if I cover myself head to toe in black as they are demanding, you know, with the black gloves and the black socks delivered from Saudi Arabia? What if I never miss a prayer? What if I do all of the things that they're telling me to do and I just stop fighting and I just finally submit? Will I actually find peace? Will I actually be happy? Will my mom actually ever be proud of me and ever approve of me? Let's test that theory. And that's that, a big part of the reason. Yeah. Whoa. And, you know, as you're describing this, I'm sure people can see pieces of this in themselves. Not that they're necessarily grew up in a Muslim family or whatnot, but some of this dynamic occurs in all of our lives and all of our families to some degree or another where we want to please our parents and Many people get have a career that they don't like just because they're trying to please their parents. And uh, I, I just think the courage that you had, I can see how you can just say, I give up and you marry this creature. How did you find out he was Al-Qaeda? Was he arrested or what happened with that? Well, I was contacted by CSIS, who are the Canadian CIA, the Canadian Secret Service, and they're the ones who told me. So I had the entire marriage, I had never left the house without him by my side. But my mom had a medical emergency when he wasn't home. And I called 911 and we ended up going in an ambulance to the hospital. And when the doctors pulled my mom off to her uh, room, I was left in the waiting room with my daughter and then I was approached by CSIS. So these two people, a man and a woman started speaking to me and I didn't really understand what was going on. I thought they were doctors. I'd never heard CSIS before. I thought that was some sort of medical term. 
Um, and then they explained to me, you know, and they had photos with them and um, they had all sorts of information and they were asking me about the man that I was married to. And I didn't know it was all like, I was completely blindsided. And later when I asked my mom, if all of this was true and she was very sheepish about it, but she did say that, yes, she did know. And yes, it was true. And, um, she thought that he was, you know, the best example, like the closest man alive to the prophet Muhammad. And she was, she thought he would be a, a great man for, for me to marry. But at the same time, she told me that she chose a terrorist because he would be somebody who would be strong enough to control me so I could finally be controlled. And she wasn't wrong. I was controlled. I was completely, you know, completely dehumanized, completely diminished. Um, but now I had a daughter. And so I, I saw the world differently. I saw myself, you know, my role in this world differently. I saw myself as, you know, it was my responsibility to keep my daughter safe and to, to protect her. And so I had to do, even though I didn't have any support system, I didn't have anyone to reach out to. I knew that I had to protect her and to get myself away from this man um, so that she would not be raised by a terrorist. And now that the cat was out of the bag, you know, he was more openly talking about wanting to go back to Peshawar um, and, you know, continuing his terrorism basically. And, and, and I would just be, you know, live in the village and just pop out babies every year. And that was going to be my future. So I needed to, to get us out of there, but I didn't move fast enough. And I ended up getting pregnant a second time. Um, you know, in Islam, I should state, let your listeners know that a woman is not allowed to say no to her husband. There's no concept of, of marital rape. You are his property. You are his, you know, the way the Quran states it is, it's he's a, farmer and he could sow his seeds whenever he feels like it. And you don't have, you're just nothing. You're a plot of land. You know, you just, you, whatever he wants to do, he can do. Um, and if a woman tries to say no to her husband, then all of the angels will curse her all night until morning. So I ended up getting pregnant a second time. And at that point, I really and truly did submit. I just gave up. I figured there's no way. I mean, to be a, a single mother with a high school education to one child was something that I had convinced myself I could do. But with two kids, um, it was just inconceivable. So I, I completely gave up. And um, when I went in for my ultrasound you know this was I was like in my fifth month and they discovered that the baby didn't have a heartbeat mm -hmm. um and so I had to go for a DNC surgery and when I was going in there they they told me you're going to go under general anesthetic and so you're going to need somebody to help you with your daughter who was about you know um, she was under a year old still. And they said, you're going to need someone to help you with your daughter for at least 24 hours. You know, obviously you're, you're not going to be yourself. And so I don't know, even, I have no memory of 
of actually planning this or plotting this, but I just thought of, you know, I would give myself some space. And I said to him, it's going to be a week. I'm going to need help with my baby for a week um, as I recover. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was not going to be helping me with the baby for a week. And so I knew he would say, go to your mother's. And that's exactly what he said. He said, go to your mother's. Now, in my head, I was thinking getting away from my mom would be easier than getting away from him. I couldn't, you know, I, I can imagine um, escaping from my mom's house, but from his, like, I don't know how I would even begin. He was incredibly physically abusive, um, and I was terrified of him. Well, I'll tell you this I feel like we are in such a cliffhanger, but guess what? Our time is out, O-U-T. And so we have you at your mom's. Obviously, you've grown into a happy, wonderful woman. And I just think everybody's going to have to read the book to find out exactly how you did that. Um, it's quite an education for a lot of people. And I know it's painful for you to have to go through this story, but people need to hear it. How can people read more about you and learn about your organization? Before I share that, Marilyn, I just want to take a moment to thank you so much for allowing me to come on your platform and speak. I know that what I'm saying is not politically correct. And I know that it's, you know, people quite often don't want to hear from me. And I want to thank you woman to woman that you are recognizing what I've been through and that you're appreciating my story and that you are allowing me to share my story with your listeners. You know, that kind of support is so rare and I'm incredibly grateful to you. So I, I just wanted you to know that um, that means a lot to me. It means so much to me. I've been silenced my whole life and I'm continuing to be silenced. And it's people like you who, who give me hope um, that we should continue talking, continue telling our stories because there are people out there who do care. So thank you. Thank you, Marlon. Well, thank you. Okay. Give us uh, your website. Quick <laughs> all right. And to answer your question, uh, you can find me at, at yasminmohammed.com and that will link to my organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, and it will link to my book and it will also link to my podcast. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and I'm sure we'll talk again. So like I always say, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.